A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Last season, millions tuned into the Betrayal podcast to hear a shocking story of deception. I'm Andrea Gunning, and now we're sharing an all-new story of betrayal. Justin Rutherford. Doctor, father, family man. It was the perfect cover to hide behind. Detective Weaver said, I'm sure you know why we're here. I was like, what in the world is going on? Listen to Betrayal starting on May 23rd on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really needs your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. Our friend Noel is on some adventures as we record today. They call me Ben. We are joined with our guest super producer, Ramsey Ramjams Yunt. So say hello to him when you get the chance. Uh, Most importantly, let's talk about you. You are here. You are you. That makes this stuff they don't want you to know. I really thought he was talking about me that time because he looked right at me when he said it. <laughs> the show, the show would be nothing without you, Matt. As numerous Apple uh, Music or Apple Podcast reviews have assured us. Oh, really? Well, I don't know. know if that's true, but I agree with it. Well, you know what? None of us would be who we are today if we mm-hmm. didn't have a certain playwright, a man that we all call back to, mm-hmm. that we all imagine as perhaps the father of plays. <laughs> the father of plays. <laughs> At least when I was growing up, I always imagined him as like the almost the one, the one from which all other uh, plays that I was reading kind of sprung from, or at least were were heavily influenced by. He's the most well-known. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a fact. We are talking, uh, fellow conspiracy realists, about Shakespeare, William Shakespeare from Stratford-on-Avon. Do you did you ever act in a Shakespearean production? I was never in a full on production. I did Ooh. many a scene. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Uh, what my favorite, I would have to say, came from the Tempest 
and it included uh, just a line that has really influenced my whole life, I think. What is it? Uh, I, I might paraphrase here, but it is, uh, hell is empty and all the devils are here or something to this effect mm-hmm. because all the devils are here. I don't remember exactly his language. But I, I know the paraphrase uh, – the, the paraphrase is enough to uh, to convincingly take us to that line. Yeah, I, I did some Shakespeare stuff as well in high school and early college I believe. But uh, the past is a watercolor in the rain, you know. Things mm, blur. Yeah. I'm still pretty sure it happened today – Playwright William Shakespeare is widely acknowledged as one of, if not the, most influential writers in the English language. His plays have been read or performed, whether in part or in whole, at uh, numerous points, millions of times across the planet. People Over are, centuries. Yeah, people are reading this. They're performing parts of it. They're performing entire productions. Here in Atlanta, where this podcast is based, there's the um, Shakespeare Tavern, which we can, we can mention a little bit later. I just want to drop that seed here. Shakespeare was also quite prolific. Between about 1590 and 1613, uh, he wrote at least 37 plays, collaborated on several more, but but who was this man? Who was Willie Shakes really? And uh, we're just going to go ahead and push this little button. That's I don't know who left this button here, but let's Ooh. just let's press it and see what happens. <laughs> hey guys, <laughs> I heard you were asking who Shakespeare was. Whoa, Jonathan what? Strickland. Hi, that's what the button was yeah. for. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I see. It's labeled Strickland. Yeah. Oh. That, yeah. You notice I marked out Quizster because this isn't that same show. <laughs> Not the same show as that. That's true. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, I actually have the honor, maybe honor is too strong a word, to to be playing William Shakespeare at the 2019 Georgia Renaissance Festival. So as Mm -hmm. you might imagine, I have done my fair share of research into this subject. And there's a lot of stuff I could tell you, but I feel like to really get a grasp on why William Shakespeare – is this person we we still talk about 400 years after he last wrote anything. I want to recite to you uh, one of the most famous speeches from Shakespeare. And there's tons, right? There's mm-hmm. to be or not to be. Mm-hmm. There's two, two solid flesh. Those are two speeches about suicide from the same play. <laughs> yeah. That's how famous Shakespeare is. But no, I'm going to – recite to you one of my favorite speeches in all of Shakespeare. It's from the the history of Henry V, and it's called the Crispin's Day speech. And this is uh, to set the scene. The English army is in France. They are outnumbered five to one. They have been spending the entire previous day marching, so they're exhausted, whereas the French troops are fresh. And just as the lords uh, of England are are looking out and they're feeling a sense of dread. They're talking with one another about what is to come. And one of them, Westmoreland, says that he wishes that just 10,000 more Englishmen who are otherwise laying in bed back in England had joined them. And the king happens to be, overhear him. And so this is – that's to set the scene. Here's the speech. Oh, one note. Paul, yes. could we uh, – Paul, Ramsey, could we get maybe a, a nice uh, sound design here? Some rousing music. Yeah. yeah. What's he that wishes so? My cousin Westmoreland. No, my fair cousin. If we are marked to die, we are enough to do our country loss. And if to live, the fewer the men, the greater share – of honor. 
God's will, I pray thee, wish not one man more. By Jove, I am not covetous for gold, nor care I who doth feed upon my cost. It yearns me not if men my garments wear. Such outward things dwell not in my desires. But if it be a sin to covet honor, I am the most offending soul alive. No, faith, my cuz, wish not a man from England. God's peace, I would not lose so great an honor as one man more, methinks, would share for me for the best hope I have. Oh, do not wish for one more. Rather, proclaim it, Westmoreland, through my host, that he which hath no stomach to this fight... Let him depart. His passport shall be made, and crowns for convoy put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when this day is named, and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall live this day and see old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors and say, Tomorrow is Saint Crispian. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, These wounds I had on Crispian's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot, but... He'll remember, with advantages, what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in his mouth as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son. And Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition, and gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap, whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's day. Now, now, here's the thing. My God. Here's the thing that really, really brings that back. So this gotta, whole speech. You, you got to hold for applause. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. There's a little bit more. All right. Thank okay. you. Thank All you. Right, okay. There it is. But that speech, that, I mean, that was Shakespeare, not me. That, that, that speech was all meant to try and rouse the troops to fight. And in fact, Westmoreland himself says, he turns to Westmoreland and says, do you want to have someone join us now? And Westmoreland says, if it were just me and you, we could take them all on. <laughs> and sure enough, uh -huh. as the story unfolds, the French lose thousands and the English number their dead at 25. Wow. Not 25,000, not 2,500, 25. And this is historically accurate? More or less, yes. The Battle of Agincourt was a phenomenal battle in which uh, the English faced overwhelming odds mm -hmm. against the French. But they used a lot of interesting tactics including using the longbow and uh, and hiding essentially kind of guerrilla warfare in the woods to the sides of the battlefield to kind of uh, 
uh, shower the French with yeah. arrows. But Flanking yeah, everyone. Yeah. Use it. Yeah. Turns out that's a really useful tactic. Uh, but this speech, I think, is one of those that to this day mm-hmm. tends to be one of the ones that in England is referred to as a truly patriotic speech. This idea of that that because there are so few of us, that actually makes this even more of an honorable action. And for those of you who do live just imagine the stories you're going to be telling your children and their children mm-hmm. and how everyone from this point forward will remember that you were here. Like that's an incredible yeah. thing. Yeah, and at the time, let's see. So Henry Henry V was written around 1599, is yeah. that correct? Yeah, it was it was in the second second Henriad. <laughs> yeah. Or actually the Henriad which was the second uh four play series in his histories. And the battle we're referring to uh, occurred in 1415. Yes. So this is at the time, the first time it's staged, this is an historical work. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? People were regarding this in some ways uh, similar to the way modern audiences regard things like um, a World War II film or maybe The Patriot with Mel Gibson or Braveheart with Mel Gibson. It, you know, something yeah. but not necessarily with Mel Gibson. Well, in the, the English history plays – from Shakespeare, that spans eight plays from Richard II to uh, essentially uh, Richard III. <laughs> yeah. That's that's oddly enough, Richard II and Richard III, not back to back. There's a whole bunch of kings in between. So the the that story is actually the War of the Roses, that, mm-hmm. that entire sequence of plays. And the interesting thing to me is that Shakespeare wrote the four plays that represent the end of of that, Henry VI, parts one, two, and three, and Richard III. He wrote those earlier in his career. Mm. And then he wrote the four plays that represent the beginning of the War of the Roses, uh, Richard II, Henry IV, part one and two, and Henry V. Those he wrote later. So you could think that kind of like Lucas, he went back and wrote the prequels. Mm-hmm. And like Lucas, we also knew where uh, where the story had to end up. I mean, this was history, although he takes great liberties in his history plays. Yes. Uh, but it was this this eight series of plays tells you the full history of the Lancasters and the Yorks from the point where Richard II abdicates his throne and gives Henry Bolingbroke, who becomes Henry IV, control of England, all the way up to when Richard III loses the crown and Henry Tudor, the father of Henry VIII, mm-hmm. who in turn was the father of Queen Elizabeth, his monarch at the time um, – like that that was that full story. So this was a story that uh, a lot of the English knew very well. And this this is an excellent um, su- summation or I would say a slice of the pie Shakespeare-wise. Uh, again, we have to thank you for that excellent recitation. Uh, we do want to recommend – if you happen to be in the area, that you check out the Georgia Renaissance Festival. Uh, Jonathan, I know that I give you a lot of guff off air because it makes my day to do so. I'm, I mean, I, I'm not going to stop. I, I, on weekends, <laughs> I put on tights and I run around in Georgia weather. It's no, uh, all right. Well, I, I admire that part. Well, <laughs> and, and just by way of a plug, uh, and very honest one, mm-hmm. I took my, my son last year mm-hmm. and he absolutely adored it. Yeah, so. it's it's the sort of thing that I loved as a kid, and honestly, it's the interactions with kids that I still enjoy. Yeah, it runs mid-April through the first weekend of June, and if you do go, 
Uh, there will be open auditions with William Shakespeare. I'll be auditioning parts. Uh, so if, you, if you've ever wanted to stand up on a stage and recite, I'll have lots of different speeches on hand mm. uh, f- from all the different plays so that we can, uh, we can cast all the – I mean, I'm going to be performing all the shows. I've got to cast every single part, right? So, uh, yeah, awesome. I'll, I'll, I'll go. Yeah, yeah we'll, if you we'll cast be there. me, I'll go. I'll go. But I'm, I, I can't wait to hear the rest of this. So uh, uh, I'm waiting for you to tell me that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare so I can lay the smack down in oh, this room. That's, I'm glad oh. you said that because the um, – Originally, we examined this this group of uh, of thoughts as a video in our YouTube video series, mm-hmm. and it was fascinating because off air, well, we've all worked together for years, folks. Oh yeah. Off off air, there have been times where more than once, actually, where you, Jonathan, I don't want to say quite out of the blue, but you have come up to me. We weren't talking about anything in particular. To tell me how much this idea has bothered you, and it bothers a lot of people. The concept, oh, yeah. the the anti Stratfordians, yes. yes. anyone who thinks that that someone other than William Shakespeare must have written the plays, I find it uh, infuriating and perplexing at the same time. But was there even a real William Shakespeare? Yes. <laughs> so, well, <laughs> there are legal documents that have his name on them. I've seen uh, six specifically. Yeah, I was going to say, I've seen a few. So, with that excellent introduction, let's dive into the life of William Shakespeare. Let's also just, Jonathan, let's go ahead and kidnap you. Sure. You work on several other shows. You work on tech stuff. You work on The Brink. You have a mul- you're a man of many hats. Yeah, I'm wearing one of them right now. You are he wearing is. one right now. You are wearing It must have been tough to choose the one. Oh, polygamy so, porter. Yep. So we're going to – there's a story there. Yeah. So we're going to uh, we're going to kidnap you. Absolutely. All right. We've yeah. conscripted you to be uh, a guest along with Ramsey on the show today. Let's explore William Shakespeare. He's born in, as I believe you had established earlier, 1564-ish, right? Yeah, some, uh, sometime around there. We don't have the actual record of his birth. We have the record of his baptism. Right, and that's a relatively common thing at mm-hmm. this point in the historical record. He was brought up in Stratford-upon-Avon, and eventually he was buried there. Of course, he made a couple stops in London, yeah. right? And uh, he maintained his household in Stratford for the duration of his career in London. But other than that, the things we know for sure about the individual, the human, William Shakespeare, uh, are they would seem relatively scant by today's terms. Especially for someone who was so influential mm. and did so many things in his life. Right. We don't have as many details as we would want. Uh, we do know that someone of pretty much the same name, the same guy, again, the person, married and had children in Stratford because there is, as you mentioned, that baptismal register, right? Mm-hmm. The One of the problems that we should establish from the jump here is that you can find contemporary written records with Shakespeare's name, mentioning him, um, even even a few with what is uh, confirmed to be his own signature, but the spelling varies. And so for people who have an issue uh, with something about Shakespeare, they'll say, well, why does the marriage bond have Shakespeare 
And yeah, who's the Shagspeare character? Mm-hmm. Are they the same as Shakespeare? Oh, you know? yeah. That was another one, isn't it? S-H-A-X-P-E-R-E? Shakespeare? Mm. Uh, yeah. I actually I actually have answers to these, but I don't know if you want me to give them. Not yet. All right. But there, <laughs> but there, but there are answers. So we do know that William Shakespeare gave evidence in a court case. Mm-hmm. He signed some documents. Uh, he went home to Stratford eventually. He made a will and around 1616 – He died. Uh, Apparently, possibly on the same date that he was born on. Mm -hmm. Incredible. April 23rd. That's a guess. It's it's based on the baptism. Yeah, still a a guesstimate, uh, but well-written just structurally. Yeah. In terms uh, of beginnings and endings. Yeah, no, I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to have a mysterious life, being born and dying on the same date, not the same day, but the same mm. date is – it does add to that air of mystery, does it not? It's kind of like Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. Mark right. Twain the, with the The comet Haley brought comet. me in yeah. and they'll bring me back out again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Shakespeare's, Shakespeare's work and his career, um, well, uh, a lot of it starts obviously in London. He, he becomes an actor and then a shareholder in what was called the Lord Chamberlain's Men. Than the known later as the Kingsmen, uh, Matt. What were what, what were the Kingsmen? They they were the playing company that owned the Globe, right? But yeah, this is this is the part where the Globe Theater, the world renowned Globe Theater, comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, it, also, the the Blackfriars Theater that would be later, but yeah, that was that was one of the first uh, indoor theaters in London. Ooh. Yeah, Jonathan, tell us a little bit about the Lord Chamberlain's Men. Sure. Yeah. So you had theater companies that. Uh, typically had a patron that supported their work so that they could get the upfront costs they would need to put on a performance and they would recapture those costs through whatever means, like ticket sales once you got to the theaters. Theaters in London were brand new when Shakespeare got there. They had only been around for maybe 15 years. Mm -hmm. Before that, you would typically see a play performed in the courtyard of an in-house or maybe in some real fancy person's like – waiting room that just happened to be as large as a theater would be, that kind of thing. <laughs> right. But this was this was a time where theaters as purpose-built structures were brand new in England. Mm-hmm. So Shakespeare is a part owner with this theatrical group, which means he gets a, a percentage of the box office. That's actually how Shakespeare made all his money. Mm-hmm. You didn't make very much money publishing a play because you didn't publish plays. You performed them. Shakespeare in his lifetime – never published any of his plays. Some of them got published, but yeah. it wasn't his decision. And right. so he was making money by helping produce work that could be performed in this theater and then getting proceeds from the ticket sales. And he was making money off of his own work because I think the Kingsmen had the exclusive rights to produce his plays, yeah. right? Yeah. For a period of time, mm-hmm. 1594? Yeah, he was essentially essentially he would write material for the theater that he had ownership in. Mm-hmm. And he would also, we think, perform in those shows. He was often listed as one of the actors, though we don't know what Who? parts he played. Uh, like, Do you think he ever did a one man? Rendition of like yeah, Hamlet exactly. or Romeo and Juliet. All the part. I'm going to do a production of Hamlet, except all the characters are in his head. Uh, he, we do actually think that he may have played Hamlet's father's ghost oh, cool. in Hamlet, but there's there's not a lot of there's not not really any hard evidence to back that up. So so you've got essentially a guy who owns part of a theater and he's a gifted writer, 
assuming that we're going with the story that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare. He's a gifted writer who is supplying his own theater with material to attract people. You also have to remember that at the time, let me set the scene here. In London, you have Puritans who Mm -hmm. are very powerful in the city. Mm -hmm. They do not allow theaters to operate within the city limits of London. So all the theaters are either north of the city or south of the city on the uh, across the Thames on the south part. So if you want to go see a show and you live in the city, you have to find – you have to pay a ferryman to get across the, the river or you have to travel all the way to the London Bridge, which is not close to where the theaters are. Make your way to the theater – Pay your penny if you're a groundling to stand and watch the show. And then you have to hustle back because the city gates of London were meant to be locked at sunset. Makes sense because of the vampires. Exactly. (laughs) Right. You you don't invite them in. Right. So you have to rush back to London to get back inside in time so that you can go to bed, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The theater district was in the same district as all the brothels, the bear baiting uh, arenas, uh, the gambling houses, and Mm. the inns of ill repute. It was a sleazy – it was considered a sleazy profession. Yeah. And a uh, sleazy show to attend. And in fact, the sleazy profession is what lends some people to suggest others who may have written for Shakespeare Mm -hmm. because they wouldn't want their own name attached to so lowly a profession. Ah, there we go. Okay, so now we've hit upon it. Uh, the other one other thing we know about Shakespeare is that eventually, in after 1596, he became a gentleman because his father was given a coat of arms, which Shakespeare paid for. Yeah, which wow, which uh, did have some money involved, yeah. and we can we can talk for hours and hours and days and days about probably each place specifically because there's such a depth and wealth of um, connection and, I don't know, ripple effect now in modern society. Sure. Um, Uh, Yeah, and just to put this mm -hmm. out there, talking about that ripple effect, my wife just the other day went to uh, the Plaza Theater where Mm -hmm. they were showing a version of Romeo and Juliet. The Baz Luhrmann. Exactly. And still still today in 2019, the the effects are seen like in those ripples as they, you know, as they affected Baz Luhrmann, as they affected even my wife when she watched it and now all the other people who are watching it. Well, and then you have all the adaptations like West Side Story, which Uh is not a – it's it's essentially Romeo and Juliet, but it's a musical and it's changed the location, it's changed the two warring families mm-hmm. to two gangs but mm-hmm. you know we we still we still see these ripples going just as strong in fact i wouldn't even say that they've weakened over time no. that we might see them in cycles it's also interesting to see which plays are are popular during different eras right. because you'll find one era where hamlet is considered the, the the height of of shakespeare's genius and then after say 1960 or so it started to shift toward King Lear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what it really tells you is more about the society that is currently enamored of that specific play than the play itself. Right. Like how um, that remake of uh, – or adaptation of Titus Andronicus, Police Academy 4. You're right. Was, yeah. uh, <laughs> it's Police Academy <laughs> 4. Son of a b- <laughs> Police Academy 4, What's Eating You. That was the Titus Andronicus it's true. adaptation. It's true. Uh, so – this guy, this individual, this playwright mm-hmm. is so prolific, especially even even in a modern day setting, writing 37 plays that aren't garbage is a phenomenal feat. Right. Yeah. And uh, this guy did it without the access to the wealth of instantaneous, near instantaneous information we have today without a word processor. It, 
probably without probably without a lot of help or did he have help? <laughs> uh, it is a huge body of work for one man, and it's not surprising that many, many people from various walks of life disagree with what we just gave you. We gave you the official narrative, but what about the people who don't agree with it? We'll explore their side of the story after a word from our sponsors. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. 
Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Here's where it gets crazy. So, Matt, earlier Jonathan mentioned the rise of a group of people called the Anti-Stratfordians. Anti-Stratfordians. There are many flavors of them. There are. There are. Uh, positively, like, Skittle level, you know? Uh, so, so like, is that six or seven? Well, let's taste the rainbow <laughs> okay. and find out. So, so Matt, what, what are these people? What's their... What's their shtick? What's their thing? Well, yeah, it's it's groups of people who over the centuries have come together and agreed that they do not agree that yeah. William Shakespeare wrote all of his plays. They or at, le- yeah. at least um, may, some of them don't believe he wrote any of them. Mm-hmm. Some believe that William Shakespeare wasn't even actually William Shakespeare or a person mm-hmm. necessarily. And uh, it, it – it varies very it varies widely. Yes. And some people disagree with their own disagreements. Yes. You know what I mean? They're, the anti-Stratfordians are not a monolithic group. The one thing they agree on is they don't think that William Shakespeare did everything. Yes. And they they have some beef with each other within their community. But you're you're absolutely right. There's the idea that someone else wrote the place. There's the idea that Shakespeare's maybe an umbrella term. Similar to the theory about Banksy, mm-hmm. the street artist, uh, probably one of the best in the world right now. There's mm-hmm. the theory that, you know. That's actually a collective. Right. Operating under a singular identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. I and tend to enjoy that idea. Yes, for as Banksy? well. Yeah, yeah I can for see Banksy. That. But one thing's for sure. This particular genre of conspiracy theory has massive staying power. This isn't like a um, – a Jade Helm thing where it comes up with an expiration date or a world will end in 2012 thing, you know. This concept has persisted for some time, but not – it's not as old as most people assume, I would argue, mm-hmm. because contrary to popular belief, the idea of um, a Shakespeare – a Shakespearean conspiracy or a question about the authorship is historically speaking somewhat recent. Yeah, there's some some uh, 19th century thinkers who were proposing this. You mentioned Samuel Clemens earlier, Mark Twain. Mm-hmm. Mark Twain's one of the people who suggested that perhaps Shakespeare did not write Shakespeare. But that guy's such a troll yeah. as well. Well, I mean, you know, Mark Twain was pretty much convinced that no one was as clever as he was. So, you know, <laughs> I used to I used to love that author, true story. Until a friend got me a copy of his woefully unedited autobiography. Mm-hmm. It just goes on and on. I'm, I, f- I feel like I'm done with Mark Twain till about 2030. Well, let's let's lay out – why don't you guys I, – yeah. I don't mean to take over your show. No, no. We could adapt you. What's I would up? love to hear you guys sort of lay out some of the, the usual suspects. Sure. The ones who are often uh, proposed as the possible – people who actually wrote those Shakespearean for plays. For sure. Well, the best way for us to get there is to explore some of the history. You mm-hmm. mentioned 19th century thinkers who first proposed these um, 
Alternatives. Uh, alternatives. There you go. That's a very safe word. Yes. That's, that's the 1800s, everybody. That's yeah. the 1800s. <laughs> yes. That's so, when Samuel Clemens would be writing. Uh, so no one really seemed to doubt that Shakespeare wrote these plays until around the 1850s. The first public anti-Stratfordian claim was written by an American, Delia Bacon. She had an article in Putnam's Magazine in 1856 called William Shakespeare and His Plays – an inquiry concerning them, Ooh. which is, I know, what a we need to talk kind yeah. of kind of message. But what what was in this? Uh, what, what was the gist of this article? Well, I mean, it's it's an opinion that is kind of valid in a couple of ways, and then just silly in others. So she thought the plays were were more than stories, like historical stories that are being retold. She thought they were um, written deliberately to spread ideas about uh, about enlightenment, about modernity, about progress of, of humanity. And uh, she thought the plays were essentially like, I guess, pr- a form of propaganda. Um, right. And it was written by uh, a secret committee, essentially, of people, like an Illuminati of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I mean, it sounds kind of silly, but at the same time, it's an interesting thought experiment if we go into it. And she cryptically hinted that there was a different person that had actually written the plays or at least had had a big hand in writing the plays, a certain Sir Francis Bacon. No no relation to Delia Bacon. Uh, Yeah, she she said that there was a secret collective and that Bacon obviously was the the leader of the group. Uh, Delia Bacon never found any – any smoking gun evidence for her beliefs. <laughs> or or anything beyond her beliefs. Vaguely circumstantial evidence. All right. Now I, I, I know you've got some irons in the fire on this one. Yeah, I'm gonna all right, sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. No, uh, but, but, I'll, I'll behave. We want to know. We want to know. We want to know. We want to know. But we want to get you set up in the right place. Absolutely. So a lot of people will perhaps unfairly uh cast aspersion on Delia Bacon uh, because she had a painful private life as well. Mm-hmm. She, When she passed away, it was in an asylum, which was a brutal place to be in, in that time and era. But – Just w- like Shakespeare. Just like Shakespeare, she had ripple <laughs> ripples oh, sure. throughout history. Absolutely. This single article – I, it lit the fuse. It lit mm-hmm. the fire for what would become an explosively um, controversial line of thinking uh, and one that very much, even in the modern day, uh, aims to be considered a serious academic discipline, mm-hmm. uh, much to the massive irritation of people who are – Stratfordians. Yeah, right. Exactly. And I love academic beef. I think it's, I think it's so fascinating. But to your question – a little bit of a, a circuitous way to get there. But to your question, Jonathan, if it was not William Shakespeare, if Shakespeare was not the author, or if it were a brand name for a bunch of people working in secret, who would the actual author be? Candidates include Francis Bacon, Christopher Marlowe. That would have been a tricky one. That would have been a tricky one, just time-wise. Yeah, because he died in a bar fight mm-hmm. while – Several plays were still being written. Although, the, although there have been theories that stated that the plays were already written. Either the plays had already been written and then were published regularly or performed rather because, again, they weren't published. They right. performed regularly after Marlowe's death or the even crazier idea 
that Marlowe faked his death in a bar fight and secretly was still writing the plays because he just couldn't give it up. Oh, my gosh. Did he move to like Cuba, kind of like Tupac? Mm-hmm. No, he just sort of moved to Southampton and <laughs> – And put uh, – you know, got some different clothes. Yeah. Oh, There's okay. a Clark Kent He put on effect. a silly wig and a mm-hmm. fake nose. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about who Christopher Marlowe is. Sure, yeah. Marlowe was another uh, writer and playwright of the the 16th century England, uh, also was a spy. Mm. He actually did work on behalf of of Queen Elizabeth, which was not the safest of professions. I don't think working for a royal family at that time is ever going to be an inherently safe profession. Honestly, Elizabethan England, any profession was an unsafe profession because (laughs) if if you were a Catholic, you were all – that was – that was dangerous by itself. And mm-hmm. Shakespeare's family, by the way, Catholic. So mm. that was – but that's another Bag story for another time. Yeah. yeah so, so you've got, you've got Marlowe who's uh, – he wrote Faust, so famous play. He's, mm. He wrote a couple of others. He was really well known for writing drama, was not known for writing comedy, which is possibly why some people say maybe he contributed some of the plays but maybe not all of them because there just wasn't any evidence to suggest that he could write comedy. I would argue that based upon some of Shakespeare's comedies, there's not a whole lot of evidence that he could do it either. Oh, but, yeah, burn. No, <laughs> no, there's actually some very funny Shakespeare comedies, but sure. they, a lot of the humor's lost on us, the modern audience, because we no longer have those puns, so mm. they don't really make sense to us mm. anymore. But anyway – so Marlowe uh, is this very dangerous kind of individual who's also a prolific writer, also comes from a fairly humble background. Which will be important later. Exactly. So we'll get into that later. But uh, but he ends up uh, trying to come to the defense of a friend in a tavern mm-hmm. and as a result of the fracas that breaks out, he sustains a critical injury and dies. And this is in the middle of Shakespeare's Productivity, right? Wow. So that that uh, uh, again, assuming that the death is legit, and it mm. wasn't Marlowe trying to fake his death so that he could live out the, his golden years, which would have been many. He was not that old when it happened, mm. um, and he was he was of an age similar to Shakespeare. They were about the same age. Uh, assuming that that didn't happen, that he didn't fake his death, it would have made it very tricky to continue writing. Side note. Unrelated, this is just a fact I found and I think you guys would enjoy it if you hadn't heard it before. Uh, I'm just reminded because of the idea of literary buddies or Mm -hmm. peers, creative peers. Uh, Ernest Hemingway, James Joyce, um, solid writers. Yeah. I'm being very fair. Mm -hmm. Solid writers, uh, notorious drunks. Yes. Uh, Do you know this story? No. Apparently they were known for uh, getting into bar fights. This jo- doesn't surprise Joyce, me. Joyce, uh, I mean, you just have to read Fitting Its Weight to know that the guy runs on at the mouth bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but apparently he was somewhat of a nebbish character, somewhat of a of – a, Yeah, what's, uh, a, what's another word for nebbish? Milk toast. <laughs> That's really good actually. Uh, yeah, he was, he was a little bit more he of a He didn't nerd. come across as masculinity personified the way Hemingway right. could. So they would be in bar fights. And allegedly, James Joyce was famous for running his mouth and then starting a fight and then physically running to hide behind Ernest Hemingway while yelling like, take care of him, Hemingway. 
crimson his face. <laughs> That's perfect. Uh, so that note aside, just use that as cocktail trivia at your next um, James Joyce or Ernest Hemingway themed soiree. Uh, and, you know, there is a conspiracy that the bar fight that Christopher Marlowe got into was mm-hmm. actually – or there's a theory that it was a conspiracy to assassinate Marlowe. Mm-hmm. That's – yeah, yeah. Well, mm-hmm. Yeah, that, there are a lot of stories about that. I mean that was 1593, which in Shakespeare's timeline would be right at the very beginning of of his rise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those would still be the, – the plays produced in the early 1590s were still considered the – sort of the juvenile works of Shakespeare, the ones before he really found his voice. Right, mm. right. And that's that's like maybe just a year before uh, the exclusivity agreement comes mm-hmm. into effect. Mm-hmm. Other other candidates include the fifth Earl of Rutland, who that's all you need to know about them actually. Uh, <laughs> the sixth Earl of Derby, the 17th Earl of Oxford. Yeah. Note that there are a lot of aristocrats being named. Ox- yeah. Oxford is one of the big ones. Oxfordians uh, yeah. are – that's one of the larger camps. Of anti-Stratfordians, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. And then even Queen Elizabeth I has been proposed. Uh, that seems a little out there, right? Uh, it turns out there are more than 80 potential whoosh, whoosh, real Shakespeare's. And this this is weird. Why do people believe this? In the case of Bacon, Dealey Bacon's original argument, uh, you could say there's a little bit of classism involved because mm-hmm. Shakespeare at at the time in which Delia writes this article, Shakespeare is very much deified, especially, especially in um, his homeland. He's depicted as, as a person um, – being from a relatively uncultured town, mm-hmm. right? Being, a rural, yeah, rural neighborhood. Right. And people say he has no formal education because they'll say there's not an exhaustive written record. Well, he didn't attend university. He didn't attend university. He Unlike wasn't at Cambridge. Unlike someone like Ben Johnson. Right. But he sure knew a whole lot about history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, <laughs> he, wrote, he wrote a lot about history as if he were correct. Yes. Is the best yes. way to say it. <laughs> yes. So at the time, though, this, this anti-Stratfordian argument is that um, based on what, what the plays have in terms of content, based on the various historical literary allusions and the extensive vocabulary, mm-hmm. they say, well, there's not really a way a guy who didn't go to college could do this. I mean, if we're being honest. (laughs) Which, yeah, that that is a very common argument. The idea that how could someone from Mm. essentially the sticks. Right. And it's the – effectively you're saying some some hick from the sticks, son of a glove maker Mm -hmm. and an an amateur actor who then turns pro. How could that guy end up creating what many people believe to be the pinnacle of poetic language – Particularly in play format, right? Uh, and That's you, another part. You know, you, you're you're thinking not just not just that these are cracking good stories, yeah. but these are characters who seem to embody much deeper representations of human nature mm-hmm. than what you would see in contemporary works. Now. That's tricky to say because there are not a lot of contemporary works that actually survived that era. Sure, and there's in fact, not there, there's a lot a, of stuff in general. There's a couple of Shakespeare plays that that may have existed that we don't have anymore. Love's Labor's One is mm-hmm. one of them, and the Cardinio. Both mm-hmm. of those are lost plays. We don't know. We we've got a um, 
uh, an adaptation of the Cardinio that was done in the 19th century, but that was a heavy rewrite, which was not uncommon. You mm-hmm. often had uh, theaters rewriting Shakespeare to perform it later on, especially as different uh, values arose in society where certain things were considered taboo. They would rewrite Shakespeare's plays to get rid of anything that mm-hmm. would refer to that. And uh, so Shakespeare's plays went through a lot of transformation, particularly in the 19th century, 18th and 19th centuries. I, I love what you're pointing out, though, about the way you point out earlier, the way theater was perceived at the time. Mm-hmm. This plays into the views of anti-Stratfordian um, scholars or researchers or enthusiasts because at, at the time in which Delia Bacon is writing this and at the time in which Shakespeare was performing, popular thought of what uh, regarding what could be considered art and what could be considered a, a higher form of art or a lower form of entertainment, uh, the popular thought drew a sharp distinction between various forms of the written word. Poetry was a manifestation of high culture. The best book was and always will be the Bible, and you will die if you don't like the version we have. Especially once James came along and mm-hmm. presented his version. I know, which was so Kanye of him. <laughs> but but uh, theater, on the other hand, was seen as like vulgar entertainment. Mm-hmm. The groundlings, uh, that, that phrase – comes from the, the the mosh pit of yeah. theater. Yeah. You would stand in this in this space that was right in front of the stage and for a penny you could stand there and watch the show. And it, if you had sixpence, I think it was, you could sit in the galleries. So you would be in a seated position further back uh, with a full view of the stage. And uh, but you know it also spoke to the popularity of the theater, the fact right. that they could get commoners who, you know, even when you sit there and say it was one penny for a show, for some people, that was that was the equivalent of two days pay. Right, wow. right, right. So they're paying, they're paying two days worth of labor to watch a show. And these shows are, cha- the, the play they would perform would change every single day because you don't do one show for a run because you, you have to constantly be filling up that theater. Because people would say, why would I spend two days' worth of pay to see the same thing again? Right. And there's only 250,000 people in London. And the (laughs) the theater fits 2,500. So you start doing the math and you think, if you want to stay in business, you got to change that. That's why you had so many plays being produced, Mm -hmm. not all of them being Shakespeare's. Uh, it was absolutely imperative from a business standpoint. So let's let's get back to that idea of the theater industry. Yes. Because for anti-Stratfordians, that tends to, paradoxically enough, uh, be a piece of evidence that they use against the argument that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare because they would say, you know what? Theater is relatively lowbrow. Right. So – one thing we do know about this William Shakespeare fellow is that he was a professional actor. Ooh. And that means that he was associated with theater. And yeah. other actors. Which, which, by the way, was right next to the brothels right, and the right. gambling houses. So there's no way someone from – the argument is from a rural part of the world in a very seedy profession in one of the sleaziest neighborhoods of London. There's no way that guy – could have written such amazing 
poetry, poetic prose. Uh, is no, it was obviously the sixth Earl of Derby. <laughs> yes, who yes. bestowed his brilliant work down upon right. the lowly actors, but could not possibly attach his name to the work, for right. it would sully his otherwise spotless <laughs> reputation. Yeah, right. yeah, and we are talking about the sixth, not that, not that degenerate the seventh. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's it's true. They also question. We mentioned this before. How Shakespeare, with no record of education or um, cultured background, uh, how could he know all the things that the the author of these plays knows? Mm-hmm. The vocabulary is calculated to be somewhere north of uh, seventeen thousand five hundred words, and the max would be twenty nine thousand different words. There aren't any signed manuscripts written by Shakespeare that are around today. Mm-hmm. We don't have anything where, you know, you can't go to the Smithsonian and see under glass the handwritten draft of Hamlet. Right. And to be fair, London has gone up in flames a couple of times since <laughs> Shakespeare true. wrote. So in, and again, also to be fair, mm. not a lot of material from that era survives, period. In, in general. Right. Yeah. So, so singling out Shakespeare's work is a little, is a little disingenuous only mm. because – it's only in hindsight that we see how valuable it was. Right, right. That's a great point. You know, we see the classism involved again here uh, with the anti-Stratfordian argument. So Shakespeare has six signatures that have been authenticated. Mm-hmm. People who don't believe Shakespeare wrote this stuff, who do believe he was a rube, uh, they say that, look at these signatures. Sure, this may have been some guy named William Shag's pair or whatever, <laughs> but – <laughs> but he writes like he can't read. He writes he writes in a scrawl. This means that he was either illiterate or functionally illiterate. Someone who can just, you know, write their name, maybe do some simple sums. But the spread of conspiracy theories about Shakespeare has an international dimension to it, right? Like both um both Bacon and another anti-Stratfordian uh, Hart were Americans and these different candidates for authorship continue to find their supporters in the U.S. People in the U.S. love this story. The History Channel probably loves this story, right? PBS loves this story. They produce documentaries about this usually every five to ten years. Yeah. I did not realize that. Oh, yeah, because I, I – I've done quite a bit of research. I can uh, tell, yeah. Which, I, to be fair, first of all, I studied this in college, but that was more than 20 years ago. Not that Shakespeare's written much since then, but <laughs> but it's been a long time since I was actively studying it. But now that I'm taking on the role, I want to be able to answer people when they ask me certain questions about Shakespeare as best I can. It is incredibly challenging because, Ben, as you have pointed out, we know so very little about the man. Mm. Very little information exists about Shakespeare's life. We piece it together from scant records and uh, and various uh, things that were written about Shakespeare, typically after he had already died. Mm-hmm. So it is hard to piece it together. But the same is true for everyone in the Elizabethan era, with the exception of Elizabeth. <laughs> yeah, and maybe some other members yeah. of, of the royal family. Of the family. court, yeah. But it's, it's true. This lack, of, this lack of knowledge 
allows alternative views or arguments to proliferate. There's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that, uh, but we do have to look at the evidence. So we have presented the broad strokes of the anti-Stratfordian, mm-hmm. anti-Shakespeare, Shakespeare argument. What, if any, problems exist with these theories? We'll tell you after a word from our sponsor. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, 
the Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Guys, hold on a second here. I'm not fully convinced. What? I think perhaps William Shakespeare was, in fact... A group of some other people or one other person or maybe a group of one other person. person. A group of one other person. <laughs> just a whole bunch of that person. You got it. Yeah. Um, okay. In some kind of multiverse. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's let's really talk about the reasons why Shakespeare probably was Shakespeare. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's – first off, it's fascinating. Of, of course we want to be involved in such an intriguing historical whodunit, mm-hmm. you know. Imagine how such a revelation could change history. The problem is something isn't true just because it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, that's a fact we all run into at some point in our lives. Yeah. The vast majority, by which we mean virtually all um, serious and accepted working Shakespeare scholars think these claims are malarkey. They think they're nonsense. And on their side, they have some pretty convincing arguments. Mm -hmm. One of the first hinges on the timing. You see, if Shakespeare didn't write this stuff or if he were somehow a secret gang of people, uh, then why didn't anybody talk about it when this guy was alive? Yeah. Why did no one call him a plagiarist? Why did none of his contemporaries who – who probably had some friendly rivalries, right? Why, I'm sure Johnson definitely did. Oh, yeah. Why didn't they Why didn't they say, let's expose this guy? And immediately after his death, people who knew him while he was alive also didn't say that. And no one came forward after he died saying, oh, okay, sorry, it was me. Also, the plays stopped after mm-hmm. he died. Yeah. No one, no one wrote other awesome, amazing plays that are held in the same esteem as Shakespeare's after he died, even just by inventing another name. Like you you would think like what what would motivate someone to create this stuff in the first place? Because keep in mind, again, this wasn't meant for publication. It was meant for performance. Mm-hmm. You did not make money selling your play to a, to a theatrical company. You maybe made five pounds, which was a significant sum, but you couldn't live off of it perpetually. And considering the amount of labor it takes to write a play mm-hmm. versus the amount of money you would get for selling the play – that that's a losing proposition. So you're not doing it to make money directly. That's why Shakespeare made his money by being a part company owner, not right. through the selling of his plays. You're not making money through publication because nobody until Johnson came along bothered to publish their plays. Another – yeah, another point. We mentioned Johnson a couple of times here. Um, who, yeah, who is this character? Well, well, to the, that's 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 a great question, Matt, <laughs> because uh, we know he wrote stuff, but we don't know when or where he was born. It is not especially unusual for us to have very very little biographical information for people existing at this time, uh, from the bottom to the top of the social sphere, not counting the royal family. Also, 
Speaking of Shakespeare's peers, not only did they not say he was a plagiarist, not only did they not say he was a fraud, they at multiple times confirmed that he wrote the stuff. Yeah. They were like, oh, yeah, uh, uh, Hamlet, I know that guy. And, and sometimes they dissed him for it. Yeah, and sometimes they were like, oh, yeah, much ado about nothing. <laughs> well, that was a stinger. Yeah. Well, you had Robert Greene who said this upstart crow – you know, has beautified himself with our feathers, saying he, – he, and he never specifically says Shakespeare, but he drops every single hint that it's got to be Shakespeare. So he's dissing on Shakespeare's largely because he's got the same sort of elitist view yeah. that this this bumpkin mm-hmm. is suddenly getting a whole lot of attention. And he's like, why are you paying attention to this guy? You should pay attention to me. I'm much more important. Of course, he also was dying at the time he wrote it. Uh, Johnson wrote after Shakespeare's death that uh, – that he he was not known to blot any lines, meaning he wasn't known for marking out a line and changing it or editing mm-hmm. it in some way. And then he said, would that he blotted a thousand. So essentially <laughs> oh. he's saying he, sh- he needed a better editor is what Johnson was saying. Yeah. So you had, you had his contemporaries not only giving Shakespeare <laughs> the credit for writing them, but sometimes saying like he wasn't that good of a writer. Right. And – it wasn't until after Shakespeare's death that a couple of his his colleagues got together and decided they wanted to gather as many of the plays as they possibly could and publish them as a memorial to their friend. So these two guys get together and they put together what is called the first folio, mm-hmm. which that's not even all of the plays, but it's most of the surviving ones that we know about. Um, and – you also had some plays in publication already, but not through Shakespeare's uh, uh, permission called quartos. Some of them were not great. They might have been written down by someone in the audience who was just trying their best to remember the gist of a play. Those are wow. what we call the bad quartos. To be or not to uh, – Something. Uh, oh, man. So, hey, <laughs> you spilled lager all over me. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there it is. Yeah. To be or not to, hey, you spilled lager all over me. Like, hey, does that smell like plague to you? <laughs> so uh, this this kind of stuff, this examination um, – can continue for for quite a while. At this point, we at this point we are going to have to close the curtain yeah. on today's episode. But we we thought uh, Matt and I that there was no better way to end than to point out uh, a quotation from David Thomas of Britain's National Archives. Uh, yes, I'm going to just do a quick quote here for you uh, and, and try to. Kind of, in a way, I guess, uh, audition for you right now, Shakespeare. Um, I'll give you notes afterward. The documentation for William Shakespeare is exactly what you would expect a person of his position at that time. It seems like a dearth only because we are so intensely interested in him. Some, uh, some you days you exit pursued by the bar. Some days the bar exits pursued by you. <laughs> so that's – I mean that's a great point though because it's – It's what we've been saying this yeah, whole time. Does Shakespeare seem more mysterious than the average person just because we're looking? Yes. I, I think it's largely also because the amount of – it's not so much the amount of work he produced because there were playwrights who wrote more than he did. Mm-hmm. But it's – the quality of the work that was produced. Once you get past the early uh, juvenile efforts of Shakespeare, the the Titus Andronicus, 
you know, the comedy of errors, that kind of stuff. And you start getting into when he was really coming into his own. Just play after play, he was writing things that still resonate with us today. And mm-hmm. something that special, I think, is what really drives our desire to know more. And it is so unsatisfying to come up against just a Darth of information mm-hmm. yeah, about this person. And at this point, with the information we have, the understanding we have in 2019, it does seem that the answer to this question is similar to that old riddle about who's buried in Grant's tomb. So who really wrote the plays of William Shakespeare? As far as the evidence indicates, it was this guy named William Shakespeare. And he was from a town called Stratford-upon-Avon. He was born there. He went to London. He worked in London. And then he went back home and he died. And he was a filthy actor associator. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. He was a known actor sympathizer. Unless, that is, there's still, centuries later, something they, whomever they are, don't want you to know. And we want to hear from you. Are you still convinced that there was more to the story? Do you believe that there truly was someone behind the Shakespeare curtain? If so, why? And if so, who is that person? You can tell us about this on Instagram. You can tell us about this on Facebook. You can tell us about this on Twitter. You can swing by and talk to your fellow listeners on our community page. Here's where it gets crazy. Or you can call us directly. If you are anti-Stratfordian and you are super offended by this concept, then go ahead and leave us a voicemail. Yeah, even make a soliloquy of it if you want to. Whatever oh, you want to do. Bonus I mean, points, yeah. Sonnet. <laughs> Sonnet would be great. 14 lines. <laughs> yes. Mm. Uh, we are 1-833-STDWYTK. That's stuff they don't want you to know in acronym form. It's also numbers. You can dial them with your phone. Uh, okay, so... Uh, if you don't want to do any of that stuff, uh, you could you can always send us an email. But before you do that, consider uh, hitting up old Jonathan Strickland. How do we find you, Jonathan? I find you. Oh, God. Oh, or weird. you just go and check out my show Tech Stuff and my other show The Brink. Mm. Uh, and uh, we do lots of shows about technology and companies uh, some of which tends to cross over into your territory. We did an episode, or Tech Stuff did an episode not long ago, um, about uh, some more stuff with the NSA, which is always such a fun, fun organization to talk about. Ooh, we might need to update. Yeah. We've also both appeared on your show at some yes. point in the past. Uh, if you happen to be in the studio with us and you want to run into Jonathan, you can just hit this button we discovered that says Strickland on it. Call back. I made it happen. <laughs> so, so inconvenient. I was, it's I was, been sitting here the whole time. I was just getting co- – the coffee machine has been pouring coffee this whole time. What? And and our guest super producer, Ramsey Ram Jams Yunt, thank you again for saving the show, my friend. Uh, we have – we have impinged upon his time yeah. too too long now, I think. He's ready to go. And he – dude, he leveled up like four times while we were sitting here. I can see it. I can see it happening. <laughs> leveled up? Yes. Ping. Has <laughs> he attained his final form? We've got to go to the – we've got to get out of the studio to find out. Uh, thank you so much for checking out the show. Uh, we do want to hear from you and we hope that you tune in for our next episodes. No spoilers, but things are going to get – curiouser and curiouser and curiouser and in the meantime if you want to send us that email go ahead we are conspiracy at howstuffworks.com
A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Last season, millions tuned into the Betrayal podcast to hear a shocking story of deception. I'm Andrea Gunning, and now we're sharing an all-new story of betrayal. Justin Rutherford. Doctor, father, family man. It was the perfect cover to hide behind. Detective Weaver said, I'm sure you know why we're here. I was like, what in the world is going on? Listen to Betrayal starting on May 23rd on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love Love at first first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts 